0: Hey everyone, this is Jay
1: and this is Angie
0: and welcome to another episode of Cross the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work and the confluence of the two.
1: Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. So today's episode is a special one for us. Jay and I are bringing together a few of our fabulous founder friends who we really admire to chat about some themes that have come up over and over in our conversations with guests, including taking financial risk, filial duty, and how the model minority myth can help and hinder when you're building your company.
0: An aspect about the podcast that is so special to Angie and I are the interactions we get to have with our guests. It was wonderful in this clubhouse to invite friends from our own networks, have them open up to each other, and build friendships to support one another moving forward. Because of this, we hope you'll enjoy this wonderful conversation. Hey, everyone. Uh, Thanks for slowly trickling in and dealing with our conversation about uh, the merits of Clubhouse as a platform. Um, Excited to... Bring on some friends uh, to be able to speak about um, AAPI identity and entrepreneurship. And now entering into the second season, we've been brainstorming some other ways to uh, bring some more folks in the community and bring some more friends into a conversation to be able to touch on the topics that we still find extremely valuable, but with folks that aren't necessarily VPs and, and uh, CEOs of companies, but people that are really close to us. Um, this is one of those community events. Um, so excited to kick this off. Um, Angie, do you want to introduce yourself and we can hand it over to everyone else afterwards?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for teeing up with that intro, Jay. Really excited for this event. We're currently between our first and second seasons right now. And this is one of the new formats we're testing. So a more fireside chat. I feel like Jay hates that term. So I'll I'll (laughs) reword it to community event. (laughs) So just a very casual conversation with a few of our great friends here who have graciously taken time out of their day to join us and who we all really re- admire. So really excited for Tate's event. And I'll kick it off to Yeong. actually. Do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, happy to introduce myself. So my name is Yeong, and I'm the founder of ZET. We are trying to become the Spotify for News. So essentially we want to make your life easier because whenever you had a paywall for a news article, if you've ever been frustrated or realized you couldn't possibly subscribe to everything, but you needed a dozen subscriptions just to read one article on each website, we got you. Um, I was born in China and my parents immigrated to the US when I was really young. And I've lived in Atlanta for most of my life before going to Boston for college. And uh, really happy to be on this podcast as a guest and happy to talk more about API identity gonna pass it over to you again, Angie.
1: So maybe we kick it over to some of our other guests too. So, Ravina, I'll pass it to you, and then do you want to pass it around after that?
3: Yeah, awesome. Hi, everyone. I'm Ravina. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Flick. We are a platform that helps connect female founders and leaders with ambitious female talent through meaningful apprenticeships and I'm a born and raised Albertan here up north in Canada Uh, and I come from a very strong multidisciplinary background and I sort of ended up in entrepreneurship with my co-founder Michelle who I'll pass it on to.
4: Oh, hi, Um, I'm Michelle and like Rena said, I'm the co-founder of Flick as well. And I've been talking to Jay for a while actually, about talking about, you know, Asian American, Asian North American identity and how that intersects with entrepreneurship. Um, And I come, so I come from a traditional Asian immigrant background, my parents immigrated from Hong Kong and they had always wanted me to be a doctor. And somehow I weaseled my way out of going to medical school and ended up in entrepreneurship instead, but it was definitely a journey. And I think there's a lot of different barriers that we come across that uh, sometimes are cultural, um, external and internal barriers in order to get into entrepreneurship. So I, I really wanted to be involved in a conversation like this. I'll pass it off to Kashish.
5: Hey, I'm Kashish. Um, I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of High Touch. I was born in India. I moved to the U.S. when I was about six years old. And then I learned English in first grade. So like not too early, but also not too late. And um, kind of had to like navigate the U.S. Health, uh, education system by myself with like not that much involvement from my parents. And so I really care about helping other people have the opportunities that we've been given. Because I feel like A lot of people take for granted that like we're already here and there's some people that are as smart as us or as talented as us or like try as hard as us and they're still not given those opportunities because they grew up differently or they grew up in a different country or they were just one of many people that were like excellent at their school but their schools were too competitive right so like those are the kinds of things i care about um but yeah i've been in sf for the past three years went to school with angie at penn and um, have been working on our startup now for the past two and a half years, but it's only really started picking up in the last like six months after our last pivot. Thanks oh, for all yeah. the
0: introductions, friends. Um, I, you know, one way that we like to start off our podcast and uh, asking our guests is going around and and seeing what their favorite dish was growing up. Um, that could be, you know, some like KFC dish or that could be something that is more aligned with your culture and your heritage. Um, I'm curious uh, what that was for you growing up um, and maybe Yehong, we could start with you and then you can pop it over to anybody else.
2: Sure. So when I was growing up, I had this favorite dish and in Chinese, it's called Hong Shao Rou, which roughly translates to red braised pork belly. And it's this delicious mouth-watering dish it goes really well on rice and it was one of my dad's favorite recipes and I always looked forward to eating it you know during Chinese New Year or any kind of celebratory event because it takes a while to prepare but uh yeah that's probably the dish that reminds me most of home um I'll pass it on to Ravina to share your favorite dish
3: okay so this is one of my favorite dishes still I don't even know if it's classified as a dish really I just love hot chicken wings. I can eat them all the time. And growing up, we always went to Earl's like once a week and my brother and I would always get the hot chicken wings with the celery and they really good parm dip. Um, so that was my favorite dish, I'll say. Um, I'll popcorn over to you, Michelle.
4: Uh, my, my, I, I love, um, I think what you were talking about, Yehung, was like chassis. <laughs> And I also love that. Another one that, that was really uh, prominent to me was I was growing up with something called guy. It's like shredded chicken. I don't really know how to explain it. It's like shredded chicken and there's like fried wonton strips and it's like cold. Oh, that's <laughs> so like, good. It's so good. I like don't really know how to explain it and we could never make it at home. And the reason why it was so special was because we only got it when my whole family from Hong Kong would come um, to visit us in Vancouver, and then we would go to this one restaurant that could make it so, so well. It's called Gunbo. <laughs> it's like this hole in the wall restaurant that you wouldn't even really know about, but every single time my whole family would come and you'd like sit around a round table, and there's like 15 of you all sharing this massive dish um, and of course, like in Asian culture, we share everything. And it's like huge, it would take up like the whole table but we would all finish it and everybody was so obsessed with it. And it's just, it, it's a, I think it's a really good like emotional memory knowing that we always had it when my whole family was together including my grandparents and everything. Um, and it was also this like special thing that everybody looked forward to. So yeah, that was, that, it's still one of my favorites and I still try to make it at home. It's just not the same. <laughs>
2: Sounds delicious.
4: Yeah, I'll pass it off to Kashish.
5: For me, I think it's this dish called Pao Bhaji. And what it roughly translates to is Pao means bread. And Bhaji is like a conglomerate of many different vegetables mashed together with like a ton of spices. And this isn't really meant to be like a dinner dish. It's meant to be more like a street food type of appetizer type thing. Um, But my mom was always really good at making it. And it's like very spicy and very flavorful. So it's kind of what I consider to be my, my favorite dish.
1: Y'all are making me so hungry. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like I, I just had a pretty small lunch today. And prior to this, I was debating like, ah, oh, should I like make myself some food? Should I go microwave something? And now we're just talking about all these amazing, delicious dishes. So thanks everyone.
5: <laughs> I'm like literally eating from a halal food truck as we
1: speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so we have a zoom going on on, on the side and yeah i'm like she's doing? <laughs> but uh that looks delicious uh-huh. it looks so good cool well thanks so much for sharing everyone again so great to to be gathering all of you so for the rest of this i'm thinking we can just all jump in whenever there's something we feel like we, we want to share right so for a bit of context on our regularly scheduled programming for the podcast where we uh, interview guests in one-on-one format. Something we so we hear actually come up over and over is relationship with parents. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm close to a, a few of you here, and I you know your personal stories there. But it can be really challenging to navigate your relationship with your parents, especially as a founder, right? For my family, I think there's there's two things at play. Like one is, I feel like I almost like owe them to some extent, right, for the opportunities that they've given me here in the States and Mm -hmm. need to pay that forward in some way. And entrepreneurship is like a big risk to be able to do that. And the second part of it is, you know, like, I feel like my parents don't, aren't, aren't super tiger parenting and the dimension of expecting me to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatnot. But I think being financially stable is something that is important to them uh, and and would cause them a lot of concern. So with that context, we'd love to hear your guys' stories on... How did you navigate this conversation with your parents, especially when you're taking the leap into entrepreneurship?
0: Uh, Michelle, it'd be fun. It'd be fun if you could kick us off here. You can <laughs> see me looking at <laughs> you on the screen. I you were gonna say
1: that. Was, the whole time you're
4: talking, I was like, "Oh my gosh, what am I gonna say? My mom's gonna kill me." <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's really funny because I totally resonate with what, everything that you said, um, except my, that my parents weren't known to be tiger parents. <laughs> but I think it's all. the way that they grew up and it's not like i fault them for being really hard on me or anything um i think that they grew up a very similar way even more difficult than i did where they grew up really poor and so they had their their parents had to be really hard on them so that they could be better and and get better opportunities and so that's kind of like the scrappy way that they grew up and that they lived and like my mom her, her parents were both teachers and they had three kids and all of the kids had to get scholarships in order to go to higher education. And so it was her reality that if she wasn't scrappy and if she didn't work hard and she wasn't perfect all the time, then she wouldn't have gotten the scholarship that would have gotten her into med school and would have gotten her where, where she is now. So I think it was really important for me to understand where all of it was coming from. Um, for me, as I was growing up, yeah, my parents, I think, always demanded perfection from me. And it was, for me, it was like, you're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And for my, and I couldn't go into business because like business is known to be a man's world. And they would all, I remember when I was growing up, um, like my grandma grew up in this generation where she wasn't even supposed to work. And she was uh, looked down upon when she wanted to work. She was like, oh, you're, you're a woman. She wasn't even allowed to have inheritance because she was a woman. Um, and laws literally prevented her from getting inheritance. So for her yeah. uh, hearing that I wanted to do something that was different, like hearing that I wanted to go into business, she was genuinely scared for me. She was like, this is a man's world. This is gonna be too hard for you. You shouldn't do it. So I was, as I was growing up, I think, a lot of those beliefs were really really put on me being like you should go into medicine you're going to be financially stable and that's all we ever wanted for all of you um, and so it was always expected that i was going to medicine that i was going into medicine and when i didn't i think that was like a huge huge breaking point point. and i i kind of asked myself it was like the very first time when i went to university and i was living by myself and i wasn't living with my family anymore that I asked myself, is this something that I intrinsically want, or is it extrinsically motivated? And I looked back on my life, and I felt like most of what I had done was extrinsically motivated, and it was, and I was extrinsically motivated to chase for perfection, which was really, really difficult for me, and I think it's really difficult for your mental health to always be chasing for perfection all the time. Um, And so when I went to university for the first time, I was like, do I want to do this for the rest of my life, truly for myself, or do I want to do this because I think it's going to make my parents happy, I think it's going to make my community and it's happy and it's going to appease like my culture. Uh, And I was like, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. And so I felt so narrow to my academics, I was kind of like, what else can I be doing. And so I I went and looked for other things. I started working with like alcohol companies and I worked with Bumble for a while and I got to experience all of these amazing areas. And I met a lot of young entrepreneurs and I kind of realized like entrepreneurship is this really cool thing where you can create the impact that you wanna create. You can create the dream team that you wanna create. You can work alongside people that you love every single day. Um, and you can still achieve financial stability. And and at some point I realized I can redefine success within my community and my culture. Um, What I realized was that they saw that medicine and law, everybody who went through those, they were successful because they had reached financial stability. So if I could reach some sort of financial stability with what I was doing in entrepreneurship, then that could also mean success for not only me, but future Asian kids that were in my community. And um, obviously at the time when I told my parents, you know, I don't wanna go to med school and I wanna be an entrepreneur. They were like, this is crazy. You're like ruining your life. (laughs) But uh, I kind of told them, You know, I've been working in all these different companies. I've managed tens of thousands of dollars in corporate sponsorships from like Bumble and Nike and Disney. While I'm in university, I made like a slide deck showing them the actual numbers of the impact that I had created. I was like, I have a plan. And I think that was what was the most important thing was that I showed them that I had a plan that this wasn't something that was just on a whim, that I was like, oh, I'm just going to jump off the cliff and do this thing. It was something that had been planned. It was something that I sought through. And so as I kept on building on what we were working on, I started the journey as an entrepreneur. We started building Flick and we started gaining more community members. Every single time we hit a milestone, I would share it with my community and make sure that everybody everybody knew so that they could find new precedent for success. Um, And I realized that was probably the most important thing was showing the older generation, the actual impact that you're creating the success, how you can redefine success, how it doesn't have to be just boxed into you know, medicine, law, accounting, finance. And I think it takes a lot of time and I don't think that everybody has rounded out to, to being accepting of everything that I'm doing, but I think my parents have definitely changed a lot and their mindsets have changed so much over time because I've shown them over and over again how you can create your own success, you can create your own path, and you don't have to just follow what everybody else does, as long as you work hard. I think I'm really, really lucky to be from a family, even though I know I'm super privileged to be in the position that I am, that I can even become an entrepreneur. um, I think I'm really lucky to come from a culture where hard, no matter what you're given, no matter where you're from, hard work is always number one. You have to work hard for everything that you do. You are continuously proving yourself. You're continuously working for what you want. And, and so I'm, I'm really grateful that my parents like raised me in that type of culture and raised me in that sort of way that I'm always pushing for something that's more. But I don't think I'm any more like, I don't think any more that I'm pushing for perfection because I don't think that that's healthy for your mental health. I think that I'm always just pushing for myself to be the best.
0: Michelle, that was really powerful. Um, specifically related to like the story about how your grandma wasn't even able to to go and work. And so her perception growing up towards working and, and going into business, and, and that's like where the men only are. Um, that's crazy to think about not too long ago, just in our grandparents' generation, like that was something that was so real. And frankly, even today in, in certain areas around the world, that could still be happening. Um, one of the one of the ideas that you mentioned there that um Made me think about one of our other guests. His name is Jason. Um, Jason V. He works at 88 Rising. Um, and and what he talked about with his with his parents and him taking a more unconventional career path was uh, his parents acted as a stop sign. And I think that that was like a really nice analogy. And, and I've I've witnessed something similar for my own parents. If I do want to follow a more unconventional path, um, because like you said, Michelle, they're just looking for success. They they want you to succeed. They want you to have some tangible result of the work that you're putting in. Um, and so when you are taking this untraditional career path, they can stop you and be like, Hey, like, have you thought through this? And, and what you said, Michelle, is like you, you planned and like you, you, you shared what your vision was and you weren't just doing something off of a whim. You were still very thoughtful about taking this leap and, and going off and starting your own company. Um, and they kind of acted as that stop sign. And then it, it seems like now the relationship is maturing and, and you're able to kind of talk to them hopefully. And, they're a little bit more accepting of it um you know i'd love to hear Ye-Yong, Ye-Yong, Um, uh, some perspective from your own conversations with your own parents um what what did they say um when you said you wanted to start a company is that a conversation you've been able to even have
2: yeah it was actually it was pretty interesting because when i left my job at twitter um, where i was an associate product manager I remember I was having a conversation with my parents and they were absolutely shocked that I would make a decision like that to leave a six-figure stable job with financial security in search of something that was decidedly less secure. And uh, contrary to Michelle, I didn't have a slide deck or PowerPoint or anything to point to as to what my next concrete steps were. I told them that I wanted to start a company. And it's really funny because Michelle, you mentioned that your parents said, you know, uh, business is a man's world. My parents told me that, you know, business is a rich kid's world. Like, if you fail, we won't have any... A safety net for you, we can't give you any uh, money, we can't really support you, and I kind of looked at them and I said, you know what, I can figure this out, um, and I had to have them make that leap of faith in me, and I had to make that leap of faith for myself, but when we were having a conversation and when I was visiting them before I would fly off for a sabbatical in Europe for a while to figure out my ideas, we basically had a, a family intervention where all my family that was stateside, my mom, dad, brother, and my cousin, and her, my uncle, they all sat across the table from me on one side and i was on the other and they were like are you sure you want to do this are you sure no one's pressuring you to quit your job like you can tell us the truth like this is so you know risky like i can't believe you're doing this and my entire life they kind of uh you know told me that education was the only way up so Three out of my four grandparents were teachers. and even when I was trying to study abroad, the only schools my, my parents wanted me to go to were Oxford and Cambridge because those were the only ones that are, were you know on par with Harvard and their minds. And so anything else was too much of a leap, was too much of a risk. And my path was supposed to be set from uh, you know high school to Harvard Law School very early on in my life um, until I realized one day that I didn't really want to be an attorney. And if I didn't want to be a lawyer, I couldn't see why, I would- I should pay $250,000 for a law degree, only to not be a lawyer, which would then kind of kill all my chances at doing something more entrepreneurial because I would just be saddled with student debt. And uh, it was difficult explaining this to them, especially when I didn't have a clear -cut cut plan the minute I was leaving Twitter. Uh, And in the years since then, when I was bootstrapping off of my Twitter savings, every day I'd call them and they'd be so worried about me and so uncertain about the future, which only added to my own uncertainty while building the startup. But I think now, uh, you know, 12 to 14 months in, I think they're starting to see that this is a real company, that I have a real plan, and that I'm hiring employees. Um, Our team is now six people. We're about to scale to uh, probably 11 or 12. Um, And I'm really excited to to see what the future holds. And and hopefully my parents can see one day that we've made a big impact. So definitely not easy. I commend everyone who's from an Asian immigrant background uh, who have decided to start the leap because it really is a leap of faith. And for me, I've never even seen anyone else at the time when I was doing it who looked like me, who was who's doing it. Now, uh, thankfully, I have a lot of female founder friends, especially from um, Asian backgrounds too. But at the time, it was so scary. And it was so kind of unconventional that I just had to follow my heart and do it. Um, but yeah, definitely learned a lot. And uh, hopefully I can talk to my parents later down the line
1: um, when I'm successful and they can see the light as well. Wow, this is so powerful just coming from both of you. Because these I, I know at least Ye-Hong, I like I know Ye but I've never like heard this side of her story. And I, I hate cold calling, but I can't help but cold call on she's here because I know part of his story. And I want to thread a needle here that I've been hearing as an undercurrent in Michelle and Ye your stories here, which is the idea of financial stability, being secure, having some sort of predictability. Right, that is almost our parents' paradigm of the American dream and of success, and they want the best for us, and that's what they'd want for us, right? And that's their their translation function to what happiness looks like. And Kashish, I'm, I hope you don't mind, I'm gonna call you a bit here, but I know your dad uh, spent a, a lot of his childhood running a gas station in Atlanta. And I'd love for you to share some of your learnings from that, like your learnings, your your dad's learnings, how that's, that's shaped a bit of your worldview and your values and how that translates now to how you approach entrepreneurship.
5: Um, well, a couple of things that my dad taught me, I think the most important one was doing things because they're the right thing to do. So like he raised us in a very like not results oriented way, which was extremely tough in like college and like after college where everyone was kind of results oriented and they were like oh but like if you do this then you'll get that and i was like but like it's the principle that matters and you only do something if it's the right thing to do or if you think you care about it, and that kind of stuff right so like for him like he would work really hard on like kind of like obscure tasks that wouldn't really make sense to me but he was like no like you got to do this because you have the ability to do it or like because it's the right thing to do and so some examples of that are um like my dad would like receive a request from his friend saying like, hey, can you help me with this? Or like, I need to go buy a car and I need you to like sign as like someone on the, on the like loans that I can get like a higher credit score. And he'd be like, yeah, like I'm just gonna go help this person. Like I'm gonna take on risk for no reason, but it's because it's the right thing to do. And so like, it kind of taught me like the idea of like doing things on principle and like not for a return and and, like letting that pay back, paid for later on. Um, And the other thing is like to be a perfectionist. So I'm not saying that being a perfectionist is the right thing to do or not, but that like his values is very much like you do things to the best of your extent, regardless of like whether it matters or not, because it's just the right thing to do. Um, I guess like one story to share is basically like the reason we moved to the US in the first place was always because of the promise of a free public education. Um, in India, basically, you can't get into the good schools unless you know somebody. So even if you can pay for the good schools, you still can't get into them because you have to know somebody to get into them. And so like he'd always heard that like, in the US there's the promise of a really good free public education. And so that's why he moved to the US. But like after moving here, he basically spent all of his like time, energy, like saving money for my education. And then ultimately when I got into college, I was like, for some reason, like there was an error in my financial aid package, and they basically said that I wasn't going to receive financial aid. Um, and like, I knew how much my dad had saved over the last like 20 years of his life. And basically I started crying and I said like, look, I'm not going to go to the school. Like, I'm just going to go to a different school. I don't need to spend a lot of money on education. And he literally sat me down and he said, look, like for the last 20 years of my life, I've worked hard just so that you can get a good education. And that's all that matters to me. Like, if you don't do this for me, then like you're doing me wrong and like making the last 20 years of my effort go to waste. And like, basically like, Show me his bank account. He's like, look, like I can afford the first two years of school. After that, we're taking loans, and we'll figure out how to make it work because, like, this matters a lot more to me than honestly it does to you, which was true. Like, I didn't really really know like what my college meant. I thought it was just like part of life, but to him, it was like a really big deal. And then luckily that story ended in a good way like we talked to the financial aid advisors and it turned out my dad had put some extra zeros in a number field that he wasn't supposed to put extra zeros into and so we got like a a lot of financial aid and he didn't end up spending his life savings on me but basically like the expectation for me has always been that like after graduating basically i was my parents retirement plan and that like they didn't really save money because they expected me to be the retirement plan and that's like pretty common in eastern cultures right like you grow up in a in like a family home where like the grandparents the parents and the kids all live in one home and then as like people get older they take care of older like, older siblings and like the older like parents like you take care of them and like basically past the age of like 14 15 um my mom stopped being engaged in like raising me and i kind of like felt bad about it for two or three years. And until I, until I finally had a conversation with them and they were like, look, dude, we raised you for like the first like, 16, 18 years of your life. At this point, like it's your time to like help us and like help us figure things out and like do things on your own. And I was like, wow, like it's kind of empowering that they're telling me like, look, like we want you to do things on your own and like help us instead of like waiting for us to help you. Uh, at the same time, it was also scary because they are like, we don't have retirement plans and like you're just going to be that for us. So go figure it out. But yeah, I think that's actually like one of the reasons why I originally felt like it was a really big risk to take like, to start a company because I was like, what if I never actually like do pay for my parents retirement? But then at the same time, like what motivates me a lot because like failure is not really an option, you know like if like it's like I'm working hard not for myself but also for my family and like in some ways like my extended family because it feels like everyone's kind of dependent on like that as like the final outcome. So I don't know, I think we're also lucky that we have safety nets these days that are like separate from like what we're working on. Like all of us probably have close friends and like other like top opportunities that we could receive um, if things didn't work out. So I have learned to be like a little bit less stressed about those things over time. Um, Yeah, that's kind of my story for like financial responsibility. Thank you so much
0: for sharing that. Um, That was powerful. And, and it's it's powerful because it's it's a it's a similar uh, line of narrative and and upbringing that I've had myself. Um, the 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 quote uh, that uh, my dad says often of you know yeah. you, you are the you are the four hundred one k like you are the investment um, and, and and the asset <laughs> and and it's half joking and and half pretty serious. Um, one thing that is difficult for me to speak to friends that, uh, I guess, like didn't have um, the upbringing that we may have had is, is financial stability. Um, and and Kashish, you were, you were commenting this on this a lot of, uh, you know, the risk that you had to take to start a company was not just a risk to start a company. It was a risk of um, foregoing a pretty steady job potentially, or, or pretty steady income. I'm curious if, if folks on the call have thoughts on this, of, you know, how to just jump into entrepreneurship while also thinking about your family and, and, and wanting to support them and, and kind of help them have like a good retirement. Um, it, it may not be as, um, it may not be a top of priority for, for everyone here, but I, I, know, I know for myself, it definitely is. And that it, I think like having the steady income working at a job like LinkedIn is really nice um, and maybe makes me a little bit more scared to jump off and do something on my own. Um, Ravina I want to make sure that you had a, you had some um you had some space to speak as well I don't know if you have any thoughts on this
3: um not too many on this particular topic but I will say that um, I'm a scholarship kid so um, I've been able to fund my education through that and I think I was fortunate in that my mother's mindset was that, You know you're going, you're getting your education, so I'm going to continue to work and provide. And when you come home, there's a warm meal for you, ready to go. Um, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, whether that's your laundry or this, just to make sure that you're comfortable. I'm sure some South Asians can relate to this, but my mom coming during a call and bringing me a cut plate of fruit, right? Um, And interrupting just to make sure that I've been well fed. And I think to date, even right now, she. Sees the hard work that Michelle and I are putting into building Flick and she continues to come to me she goes to work every single day and it comes back to that idea that she still wants to be able to provide for me so that I'm able to achieve my potential so that afterwards, once we are able to be financially stable on our own continue to grow a business and grow into the person that i want to become then i'll be able to take care of her and those roles will reverse and hopefully she won't have to work a nine to five job but she's really put in that sacrifice to ensure that i'm able to be the best that i can be to reach my potential and take on advantage of the opportunities that i have right now and i noticed that in undergrad especially right Uh, I didn't have to work a full-time or a part-time job one of which because my schooling was funded but in addition to I probably should have been helping to provide to pay for the bills at home my mom took that on instead so that I was able to go and participate in extracurriculars Um, but yeah I think ultimately I've been very privileged that my mom was able to create that space for me to allow me to explore different opportunities. And that's something that I'm very grateful for. And something that I recognize is quite the privilege to have in my life. And for my mom to be able to make that sacrifice.
0: I'm curious, um, Michelle or um, Ravina, like if you have any thoughts on this idea of like, finding the balance between supporting your parents and wanting to help your parents versus actually just like doing what you want to do. I know, Michelle, you spoke about this, but I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts.
2: Getting that, you know, I could live out my parents' dreams into this very financially stable job as a lawyer and have some guarantee that I would be able to support them. But at the same time, I'd be sacrificing my entire life to do that. And I would be personally unhappy. Um, and if I was personally unhappy, I would outlive my parents. And I mean, where would I be, right? And so I ended up choosing to do a startup, not because there was a guaranteed financial outcome. In fact, in most cases, it's the opposite. It's most likely probabilistically that your startup will not make you a billion dollars unfortunately and it's one of those leaps of faiths that you almost have to make emotionally because it's something you're going to be doing day in and day out uh, if you're lucky for years and years um, working 80 hours a week for for most founders for sub minimum wage for each of those hours uh, and it's not really about the money in the beginning although if you're lucky and successful hopefully at the end there will be an exit but I, the way I figured it, it's like, they came to the States to chase the American dream and they passed that dream on to me, but my dream looks very different from theirs. And so the best thing I could do for myself was to chase my dream and not to live in the shadow of theirs.
5: I do have one thing to add, which is like, in some ways startups are like kind of the best way to pay it forward to your parents. Because if you think about it, like we have a lot of time to enjoy our lives and to be like this might be like a hot take but like we have a lot of time to enjoy our lives and like to like worry about our financial stability and like our happiness and like whether like we're like fulfilled and stuff like that but our parents are already like basically like 50 like bryson's parents are 65 and my parents are 54 like they don't have that many like healthy years to like go and travel and enjoy things and like really live their lives as well like maybe they don't care about those things right maybe they care about like starting a school or like doing something like to give back their religion or whatever it might be. Um, But they only have like, maybe like dozens of like healthy years left to do those things. And so I do kind of feel like it's not enough for me to make like small amounts of money a year that are like enough to like help them like, like have like a retirement eventually, but I'd much rather like figure out how to have some outcome the next five years and pay for their entire retirement at once. Like, force like find a way for them to be able to like quit their jobs and like really like do like what they want to do and i thought that was like the right answer i thought that was why startups were great because like you could become like really rich like really quickly and then like just give it all to your parents and then now they can like live their lives as you want them to live their lives but then like i started talking to them about like hey it's like what do you actually care about like if, if let's say like money wasn't a problem what would you do and they're just like i don't know and like they just can't answer for me like what like would make them feel fulfilled or like like what like they want to do for the next like many years of their lives. And so now I'm kind of confused because I don't know how to like mm-hmm. encourage them to think about things other than like supporting me and my sister or think about things other than like sending money back home to India because mm-hmm. they've always like thought about those. And so if you guys have any tips on how to get your parents to do things other than work all the time, that would be really awesome.
1: Because <laughs> like, I completely resonate with what you were saying here where you know, our our parents have just like grinded for so many years and just want them to just like take a seat and chill for a bit, right? Like, let me take care of you, just relax. But it's almost like they don't know how to enjoy themselves because they never were raised in that kind of environment, right? Like they never ate at Michelin star restaurants. They never went to all these fancy, you know, Caribbean islands for for summering and, and whatnot. So all our conventional, I guess, narratives around what enjoying yourself when you've made it looks like doesn't necessarily apply to them. So similarly, I'm struggling. I I try to like pay it forward by just like feeding them (laughs) a lot. Yeah, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Right. So it it begs a question too. at the end of the day, like, what are you doing it for? If like the the huge sum of money won't buy the things that will make them happy. Right. Or can't even buy the things. It's Mm -hmm. it's such it's such a tough question. But really appreciate you you sharing that. You know, what you guys are mentioning here reminds me of something we talked to with one of our season two guests, who is still a secret, but I think you guys would really resonate with, where he was saying how entrepreneurship is almost like the ultimate manifestation of the American dream, right? Where you're building something out of nothing. You get to craft the kind of environment you want, the kind of life you want that wasn't possible before. And you're paying it forward and uplifting others in, in the process. So on that note, you know, tying that a bit to our, our favorite topic here, I'm sure, for you guys as founders of fundraising. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of you have gone through the process lately. And something we've heard from some of our guests who are also entrepreneurs is that as an Asian American, you are still bounded by the constraints of the model minority myth right and what i mean by that is when investors look at you when customers look at you when anyone looks at you they think okay they must be doing really well i expect them to do well and i expect nothing short of excellence from them and it's just one of the ways in which you know the model minority myth manifests but i'd be curious for this group here when you know you're speaking with investors or customers or you know folks who can really accelerate your trajectory how, how have you found that your Asian American identity has aided those conversations? And in what ways has your identity perhaps created some obstacles in your path?
5: Well, I could start with a little bit, which is that um, to be honest, it's helped me a lot. And I think this is probably some male privilege speaking too because um, like I can't tell how much of it is like being Indian versus like also being a guy. But like, so basically like I wasn't like super technical, especially compared to a lot of my peers that are starting companies. Um, I haven't worked as a software engineer before I didn't even study computer science, I studied robotics. And so when I started raising money for all these software companies, people just automatically assumed that I could code, which is like not really the case. Like I'm not a good developer and everyone else like kind of knows that has worked with me that I'm like fine, but like not anywhere close to the best. But every VC you talk to is just going to assume that you're an awesome developer because like you're an Indian male. And so I was able to get away with presenting myself as significantly more technical than I was um, without even like trying, like they basically said, so we assume like you're going to code the whole thing. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great proposition to me. And, um, I I don't know if there's any negative biases for me to share because I felt very lucky in that regard.
4: I I think, um, I don't know if other people have uh, encountered this, but, I think that it's been interesting to talk to other people. Not We haven't, so Flick hasn't raised money and we're, we're not really planning to right now. Um, we, we have been bootstrapping and loving it. <laughs> so, but as we were talking to people who were in the entrepreneurship space, I think I found that a lot of people said, oh, you guys have it so easy. Um, you know, like Asians do pretty well. Mm. And I, I've actually, I've gotten that quite a few times that, I think a lot of people do believe you know, the the model minority myth. It's like, I've heard a lot of times like, oh, Asians don't have it as bad as other people. So you must be doing really well or you must be doing really well because you're Asian or like, you're really good at math because you're Asian. Um, and so I don't know if that, I don't know if that has really been a, an actual obstacle. I think it would be more of like a mental obstacle not like a physical obstacle. Um, But I do think a lot of the time it it does hurt you mentally when people are just tell you you're good at things or that you must be doing well just because of what you look like. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has kind of encountered that before.
2: Um, I actually had kind of the opposite experience of that, I think, just because Zet did raise money and we talked to quite a few VCs and I just don't think that they came across too many Asian female solo founders from a non-technical background working on a consumer product in the media space. I very much felt like an outlier. And in general, I don't think female founders get too much funding. Um, There was a report that came out uh, this year, that in 2020, the rate of female founded companies dropped to one of the lowest levels it had ever been. And uh, in the VC ecosystem, about 2% maybe of venture capital goes to female founders. So there's just not a whole lot of precedent. I remember uh, speaking to uh, one entrepreneur who said, Oh, you know, your idea is great. You could be just like the next Stitch fi- Fixer Glossier. And I was like, That's weird because you know my idea doesn't have anything to do with beauty tech or fashion tech but I think those were just the only examples if you do the whole pattern matching thing of successful female founders. Um, and. You know, not neither of those women are building something that uh, I'm I'm building, or the model doesn't quite line up. So I feel like if investors are very heavily indexing on pattern matching, which they often do for successful investments, hence the uh, you know Indian male founder thing that must be technical. I actually had another Indian male friend who said the same thing that investors just assume that he was a brilliant technical founder and he just rolls with it. Um, I don't know if they make those assumptions per se about uh, you know someone like me, but that's just the experience that I had. And I, I feel like oftentimes I was pretty concerned, pretty worried that I didn't fit into the kind of pattern of uh, you know white technical Stanford dropout that would more easily get funding. But uh, fortunately, it didn't deter us too much. And we persevered onwards. And yeah, uh, I think that there are, is enough money out there for founders of all stripes and colors, as long as you make your vision really clear and you have traction and other numbers to back you up. So that was kind of my experience fundraising, but have a lot more thoughts down that rabbit hole.
0: Wanna make sure there's some space here before we end. Um, If anybody in the room wants to ask a question, does anybody feel compelled to um, speak to any of our guests and, and ask a question? regarding anything that was said here, I think you can just raise your hand. Um, I'll wait a few awkward seconds to see if anybody wants to. And if not, then that's okay too. Um, I think, I think you know, if no one wants to ask any questions, we're kind of nearing the end of time here. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on everyone and, and, being, and being so open and being so vulnerable and being so honest we had these uh, items that we wanted to talk about, like in a, in a preparation call we, we held before, um, I was just looking at it right now, um, and we definitely got a little bit off script and I loved it. Um, I loved how we were able to talk a lot about um, our parents, how, how that's impacting our founding story and, and your founding story. Um, this is a really special conversation, so thank you all for being so vulnerable and, and so open and um, just coming here and creating a space for, for each other to, to be more open.
2: Thanks so much, Jay and Angie, for
1: hosting us. Thank Thank you. you. That
3: was great. Thanks thanks for having us.
0: All right, everyone. See you later.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian-American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And
0: as always, you can head over to across the to learn more about the show as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.